Hey, hey, it's Jackie, and we're in our third episode of our series, Manhood in America. And today I'm talking to Nate Piles. Um, He's a thought leader, a blogger, pastor, and author of a book called Man Enough, How Jesus Redefines Manhood. And what I hope you walk away with today is that you will consider how we socialize men, how we keep them from being known as God intended, and what we can do to change that. Welcome to the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast, where we're having off-the-record conversations. I'm Reverend Dr. Jackie Reese, founder and president of the Marcella Project. As a pastor, preacher, and thought leader, I've walked with women of faith for decades and had thousands of conversations about what women encounter solely because they are women. At work, family, their faith, with relationships, sex, the church, their bodies, and Jesus. On this podcast, we're going to be asking hard questions, dealing with real issues, and revisiting scripture with a new lens. These conversations are going to put words to your female experience. They're going to ennoble you as Jesus intended and encourage you to bring your full self to the table. It's here we're going to reshape our view. Welcome back. I am so excited for you to get to hear from Nate today. Um, His book, Man Enough, is one of my favorite books on masculinity in America. Highly, highly recommend it. So I want to welcome you, Nate, um, to this podcast. I'm so glad you're taking the time to do this. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. Okay, so I'm always curious why someone chooses to write what they write. Like, I am sure there's always a backstory to it. So I was wondering, why write about men? What, what provoked you to do that? Yeah, so for me, it really came out of an experience um, that I had when I, I, I can never remember, you know, I, I, the older you get, the farther, you know, it, it all gets fuzzy there. So I think I was 30, 31 years old. Uh, I was on a leadership retreat uh, for the denomination that I'm a part of. And it was really, it was a retreat to do some introspection, to look at ourselves, uh, to see the places where uh, maybe there's some wounding in our past that God needs to heal, uh, that sort of stuff. And so I was attending to the retreat material all weekend long. And what I became really present to was this gnawing sense of loneliness, like this idea that nobody knew, really knew who I was, but that's all that I could really put my finger on. And so at the, uh, at the end of the retreat, we had an opportunity to share with somebody what we were getting present to and then ask for prayer. And so I went up to uh, a guy by the name of Jim, who's become just a dear friend of mine. I said, all I can say is that, you know, I I have this growing sense of loneliness. And he was like, well, why, why do you feel lonely? I said, well, because nobody really knows who I am. And he said, well, why is that? And I said, well, because uh, I am afraid that if they really get to know who I am, that they're going to reject me. And he said, well, why is that? And I said, well, when I was in seventh grade, I had these experience where some of my closest friends uh, uh, kind of abandoned me. Like friend groups change in middle school, which I think is, if ever I was to believe in purgatory, it's because of middle school. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> it's just awful. It is awful. Uh, and it's the worst. And it's the worst to parent. uh, It's actually a very hard age to parent. Although I will tell you, I have three, I have three children, 31, 30, and 28. Two of my first two are boys. And um, no one told me that junior high was worse than high school, but also that early 20s for boys are terrible. And I didn't, nobody taught me that early 20 boys are really stupid. 
And I just thought they would get like their feet underneath them, you know, and it, they didn't. They, and I just kept thinking, wow, somebody, anyway, those were my two hardest stages was junior high, but yeah. also early twenties for boys was terrible. Anyway, keep going. Seventh that's, grade, that's purgatory. Really interesting. So yeah, seventh grade, purgatory. My friends, my friend groups were shifting around and people that, kids that were, I was really close to, uh, I no longer was, and I never really found that other friend group. And so that was, it was just really a difficult time for me. And also I started to get picked on a lot. And so the way that I shielded myself from the pain of, of that experience was to become very self-reliant, to become, uh, uh, to not count on anybody else, to reject people before they got the chance to reject mm. me or to prove my worth. Like I will give you, so one of the vows that I made during that time period was I will give you no reason to reject me. Um, and so because of that, nobody really knew who I was, right? I was constantly putting forth this image that I thought others would accept, would like, would value. Um, so I shared that with Jim and, uh, and, uh, and then he asked me the question, where else do you feel that you will be rejected? And I knew instantly it was like my relationship with God. And so I just, I lost it. Began mm. to weep. And Jim gave me a hug and, you know, it was, it was extremely kind. And then he stepped back and he said, he said two things to me. He said, one, in the two years I've known you, I've never felt more close to you. And two, uh, if you begin to live with authenticity and allow people to see you for who you really are, you will stop feeling like a, a seventh grade boy and you will begin to feel like a man. And at that point, I was like, ah, whatever. That's just, that's just like some psycho gobbledygook. But I took him on. Like, he gave me the challenge. I stepped into that challenge and really tried to live with a greater level of authenticity. And what I found was he was right. Like, I began to feel more confident as a man. And so that began to, uh, like, a journey of, of wondering, why did it take such an extreme experience of vulnerability and weakness for me to begin to feel more like a man. Is that something wrong with me or is it something wrong with our expectations of what it means to be a man? Because I pretty much had embodied the, you know, men are strong, men are self-reliant, men are rocks, men are immovable forces, you know, and I, I took that into you know, downhill, downhill ski, backpack, hunt, weightlift, like did all of the stuff. None of that made me feel like a man. What made me feel like a man was, crying before another guy and hearing the words like you're loved you're accepted and 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 so that's what caused me to write the book it really was an examination of is there something wrong with me that i needed to have that kind of experience or is there something wrong with our understandings of masculinity yeah and i would absolutely argue there's something wrong with our understanding of masculinity i mean one of the things i i you know i read your book years ago loved it i have recommended it to so many people i've um I think I've been chasing this issue of masculinity for at least a decade only because I'm not male, but only because I had to figure <laughs> out what I was experiencing from the church culture about what it means to be the ideal biblical woman. Right. And I wasn't sure, yeah. fitting into that mold. And I kept thinking as a new Christian, I, I came across this in my twenties. I came, became a Christian in my twenties and there was a lot of pressure to become this ideal biblical woman. And I couldn't even put words to what this pressure I was experiencing. I just knew that I had to change who I was because I was too loud, too assertive, too, you know, I needed to get quieter, right. smaller, lovelier, <laughs> you know, learn how to shop. I mean, all these things that I didn't do very well as a woman, um, a Christian woman even. And so, um, 
you know, I, 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 that put me on a pursuit of, okay, what, what am I experiencing? And of course, the flip side of ideal biblical woman or the ideal woman, um, which in America, the ideal woman is thin, sexy, young. And then if we're yep. going to add Christian to it, she also has to be married with children and take care of the whole universe. Her body is for nurturing the world around her. Yep. Um, and so that's the ideal for a woman. You talk about in your book, um, the ideal man. Um, and you say that actually the ideal man has not evolved that much from what we used to say about him in the 1950s to how we actually um, idealized him today. So I would love for you to tell our listeners what exactly is, and you've already mentioned some of the characteristics, but what exactly does it mean to be the ideal man? And then is there a difference between that definition or that ideology um, in culture versus the church? Like, do we see the same thing or do we hear the same story or don't we? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, kind of ripping off another book that's out there that's done a lot of this work at a historical level of Jesus and John Wayne. Like, I really think from the 50s on, John Wayne is the epitome of the American male, right? This guy that is cool, that it's guy that uh, is able to control whatever situation that he walks into, this guy that is revered by other men. Um, he this, wins uh, at everything. He, he wins at everything, right? <laughs> right. He, he, he is like, whether you want to call it, you know, a victor or a conqueror or whatever it might be, like that's sort of the, the idea. If you go into business, you're going to win. You're going to play sports, you're going to win. Uh, you're going to get in a fight, you're going to win. Like it is, uh, bait, American masculinity is largely based in competition. Um, and, and, mm. and so you, you see that play out in different, even though it takes a little bit of a different iteration, uh, from the 1950s on, like you could make the argument, like in the 60s, it came, became sort of the, the Mad Men, you know, Don Draper yep. sort of thing. But again, he's still got that cool, calm, collected. Everybody looks up to him. He's successful. Uh, that carries all the way through. Um, and, 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 and part of what underlies American masculinity, regardless of the era, is the idea of the self-made man. Like, I did this myself. I am the one who pulled myself up by my bootstraps. I am the one who endured the hardships. I am the one who was able to uh, resist anything that was going to undermine my success in the world. So, yeah. Does, now, does that carry over into the church? Yes. Very. I mean, <laughs> yes. Very much so. Uh, there have been, I think, I think one maybe caveat to that is that uh, for a while, the church has emphasized the need of fellow brothers in the battle, but it's really, I need some, I need brothers in the battle to help me uh, accomplish all these things I'm, you know, that I'm working. It's not like this joint, we're doing this together. It's like, I'm going to support you in your efforts to become the self-made man. Right, right, right. And to resist sex. I mean, that's the other thing we did the battle with the men. Yes. It was all about like, we're going to be able to help you control yourself. Because again, that's a whole nother narrative. We tell men, you can't help it. You are sexual prowl, yes. you know, can't control yourself, animalistic. I mean, that's the story. We you give. are automatons wired for sex and can do no other. Right, exactly. So you need a band of brothers to help constrain, right, to succeed and constrain. So, um, hey, babe, my husband's making a lot of noise eating over there in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> Because <laughs> he just finished working out, and now he's got to eat. Now he's laughing at me. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think that's what I learned that was fascinating to me is that there is not a large distinction between what we say about men in the culture and what we say about men in the church, which is really problematic to me when something yeah. aligns so well. 
Right. Both in American culture and in the church, masculinity, or let me say manhood, is not assumed. It is something you have to earn. You have to prove yourself as a man. That's true of American culture, and you, and it's true in the church. I mean, you can hear it all the time, you know, the jokes of, oh, well, he just lost his man card, as if it is something that can be taken from you. Uh, you know, the, the whole idea of shaming men. To, to rise up and to be uh, more mature or to take greater responsibility for the families or whatever. It's, it's the implied uh, message, though, is you are not a man unless you do these things. Right. And, and at any moment, exists. it can be taken from you. Exactly. Slip yep. and it's over. Slip and it's yep. over. Yep. Exactly. That yep. sounds exhausting to me. That sounds exhausting. Yeah. It yeah. sounds like it, the it, earth it is, is constantly shifting is what it sounds like to me. Um, you're right. Go ahead. I was just going to say it is because you're always, there's always this level of competition, right? There's always this like, and this is why you get around a bunch of guys and you'll have, uh, the one-upmanship stories, Mm -hmm. right? That's constant. And and all that is, is an effort to say, I, I have value to, or I have worth, or I belong, or I'm a man. Yeah. And it's, it's this constant low gravel, low level anxiety. You know, I, I've, been referring to it as like anxious man's masculinity. It's just, there's always a low level of anxiety of like, am I really a man? Right. Do others see me as a man? And you know, what's interesting. I don't think most, I've asked this question to people before, but I, I actually don't think women walk around with that anxiety. We are not actually in fear of losing our womanhood. And we are, by the way, um, in competition with each other. I actually think the church sets women up to compete with each other, right? Like once you have an ideal, now you've you've created, well, she's she's homeschooling, she's doing this, well, she's got children, she doesn't, she, you know, we set it up for competition. But women fundamentally, I don't think have an anxiety about whether I'm obtaining womanhood, right? I might be competing with you about how well I'm doing it, but my womanhood, I don't have a womanhood card. It's never... No one's taking it. It's a very and, interesting and thing. Maybe, maybe, maybe you'll correct me on this. I've heard phrases in the church, you know, like biblical womanhood, but I've never heard real womanhood. Right. But being a real man, that is language that is pervasive. Sure. And we don't say woman up. Nope. We say man up, right? So this is, I think, an interesting yep. thing that we need to ask ourselves. Why is it that the man card can be pulled but we don't have that same thing for a woman. It's a very interesting question. I want to move us on to something you just said about Jesus and John Wayne. And I agree with you. Kristen Dumez did a fabulous job um, outlining the historical, at least, you know, basically since um, Billy Graham and a little bit before that time frame of muscular Christianity. And one of the things I was talking to Stephen mm-hmm. Boyd about, who's a prof from Wake Forest, and he's you know, studied gender for in religion for like 30 years. And he said, you know, I've watched, and he's about to retire. He's almost 70. He's just a lovely man. But anyway, he's about to retire. And one of the things he said when I was interviewing him was that we, we go through eras in the United States of where this, what does it mean to be a man um, gets accentuated. It's like the anxiety level that you talked about gets raised, right? And these are usually promoted or caused by shifts in society. Like we see it during the Industrial Revolution, which I find very interesting that people will say feminism ruined the American family. 
And I'm like, no, not true. And if there's anything that did damage to the American family or the family unit, it's the Industrial Revolution, which has to do with money and economics. Yes. Right. So, um, you know, we see men moving, uh, masses moving from, from farm to factory. We see everybody going to work in the factory except the very rich, right, which was maybe 10% of the population. So we have child labor laws that come out of that because kids were also working, you know, working in the factories, et cetera, et cetera. And during that time frame, there was this rise of anxiety amongst men like, what's my work all about? This, this meaning mm-hmm. of work, this purpose of work slid from them. And so there was a rise of question is, what does it mean to be a man? And we see some people answering that for them. And we see, I want to point out to the listeners that the Promise Keepers was a reaction to that also, um, not the Industrial Revolution. But in the 90s, there was this massive loss of jobs, and it affected men in ways that it didn't affect women. And so once again, we had this rise of a question of what does it mean to be a man? This anxiety gets heightened and Promise Keepers was one of the answers to that question, that anxiety that was being raised. In your book, you bring up a historical time frame. It's the Billy Sunday. And I bet most of my listeners do not even <laughs> know who he is or what that is. But could you just tell us a little bit about that? And what does that mean when he brought about what we call muscular Christianity? Yeah, well, actually, Billy Sunday's ex- muscular Christianity started in England a little bit before Billy Sunday. And then he picked up on it. But Billy Sunday... Uh, was an itinerant preacher, would go around sort of like the first, like he was Billy Graham before Billy Graham, but he was like this weird mesh of Billy Graham and Mark Driscoll, if you will. (laughs) Just very (laughs) like evangelistic, like his desire was to go out and save people. But then also he, he did not mince words when it came to uh, what he saw as effeminate preachers in mainline denominations as what he saw is happening in culture. I mean, it really was, uh, he was, you know, calling out what he would say is limp-wristed. I forget exactly how, but I remember limp-wristed was the thing. Like he, effeminate masculinity, he had no tolerance for. And it was this idea of men need to make themselves strong. Men need to... Uh, 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 control things and be almost have this warrior mentality. Um, and that's how you fight against sin. That's how you fight against culture. That's how you uh, live as in the army of Jesus, so to speak. And so, uh, yeah, Sunday really popularized what was beginning in, I mean, the YMCA, YMCA movement, you know, that began, that really is a kind of form of muscular Christianity. People go and train their bodies. Sunday took it, really applied it to the faith. And then, uh, yeah, it's moved on into a number of different iterations and is alive and well today yet. Yeah, so you say it's alive and well today. So does Kristen Dumas. Where do you see it? Uh, tell, well, me, I mean, tell me what it looks like today. Hell, it takes on so many different forms. I think, you know, uh, Driscoll was one person who really embodied that muscular, tough, take no prisoners, you know, don't put up with any level of pushback. You know, that that's a form of muscular Christianity. Uh, there are churches around the country that do these fight clubs. They literally are like fight clubs, the movie where they get together and they learn how to fight and then they actually fight one another. Uh, there was a documentary that was done on that a few years ago. Um, I think it was called Fight Church. Um, oh, do you see that? You see, yeah, it was literally called Fight Church. Oh, yeah, it was crazy. Help it was crazy. Us. Yeah. Um, and then there, you know, you see it in the, in the, in the, uh, Churches where like guns and religion are super connected, right? The Second Amendment type churches or Patriot churches, they call them. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's just a lot of different iterations of that that still exist. Um, and I think 
more and more what you see is they are being connected to some sort of nationalism. Yeah. So. Yeah, very much. And Kristen did a great job of helping us see that. I, when I read her book, because I went into like um, a crisis of faith in 2016, as did many women who minister around the country, particularly sure. those of us yeah. who aligned with evangelicalism. And I mean, I know because all the women started calling me and I'm like, I got no answers for why this is okay and <laughs> why our churches are promoting. I, I don't know. And it yeah. wasn't until I read Kristen's book and I called her and I'm like, oh my God. Oh, now I get it. It was like, an epiphany of how we were okay with sexism and misogynistic um, men because we've actually been promoting them in our churches as leaders yeah. in our church. We like them. We like these men. Um, we like strong men. Yes, we do. So strong men with an authoritative thread that runs through their leadership style. There's something attractive about that and that you can draw direct lines between muscular Christianity and that kind of leadership. Yeah, which makes me, um, I've been reading Bell Hook's book, um, mm -hmm. The Will to Change. And okay. one of the things, you know, she's a, a feminist and she just recently died. I actually haven't read a lot of her stuff, but I, I just started a while ago. Anyway, she's writing on men masculinity and can they change, whatever, can we change this? And one of the things she said that I thought was really interesting is, she said women, and she's, speci she's specifically speaking to white women, privileged women, me, white privileged women, right? Um, yep. She said we actually don't want to change the narrative about men. We actually just want to enter into the rights and power and authority that you men have. So in other words, she argues, we want men... We actually are asking men right now to be emotionally intelligent. It's a big thing out there right now. Like, hey, we need you to start being emotionally intelligent, which means being vulnerable, right? Which now right. you've got to be weak. Ooh, right? So we want men to have emotional intelligence, but we do not want them to show vulnerability. We women do not want them to be weak. We do not want to know they're struggling with depression. We do not want them to not make as much money as us. So it's interesting. She argues that we women are reinforcing this ideal manhood, not every mm -hmm. woman, but many, what do you, what do you think of that? I, I think there's absolutely some truth to that. I forget. I think it was, I think Brene Brown included a story yes. of a guy who came up to her yes. after one of her uh, talks and, and essentially said that thing, like you talk about vulnerability, but my, and he, I think he was saying his wife and his, his other family members don't want him to be vulnerable. Right. And so he doesn't feel like he can. Uh, and, and there is, yeah, I think that that's very true. You know, most of, most, a lot of the time, men are trying to live up to the expectations of other men, right? That's where our, I think our predominant pressure to conform to the ideals of masculinity comes from. However, that's very much, I think, I think the point you made is a very astute that there are women who are pushing for that too. And it's really interesting how you frame that or how Bell Hooks framed that. Uh, because it isn't that women are trying to undo patriarchy. It's rather to share in the power of that's patriarchy. Exactly right. Right. And uh, yeah, that's, that's really interesting because if you like, if that has been the dominant source of power in a society and you remove that, then where does the power go? And that's a big question mark, right? And right. so rather than not knowing where it's going to go or who's going to end up with it and the, the possibility that I might not have it, if it goes over to this new thing over there, I know where it is. 
So I'll just go there and I want that. Right. I want that. That's a really, yep. That's a really interesting observation. Yeah. She's, she's got some interesting things to say. She would even say that, um, well, forgot where I was going, but it had to do with patriarchy. <laughs> uh, yeah, that women are promoting and keeping patriarchy in place. That the feminist, oh, there's what she said. And um, she said the feminist movement, and, I, and I'm not quoting her, so I hope I don't over accentuate what she said, but um, she basically said the feminist movement failed in that it didn't offer men a better story than patriarchy. Um, and so, like, mm. there were men who were interested in elevating women sharing, mutual sharing of power and authority, et cetera, which changed how you do maleness, right? But she said, actually, we didn't, what we, she said what we gave them was a man in a drag suit or drag, drag, drag yeah, clothes yeah. or whatever. Um, and so I thought that was really interesting because I think that is probably part of the problem. And I think Carolyn Custis James does a beautiful job, and so do you, about offering a better and bigger vision for replacing maleness and patriarchy, which you guys are living underneath this construct of patriarchy that requires you to man up all the time, right? So right. She, yep. th there has to be a div different vision and a vision that's better. Before we go there, because I'm going to get to the vision, yeah. I need to yeah. back up and talk about um, the feminist movement. Um, as a woman who every time I get out there and teach people, I get accused of being a feminist, which I'm like, well, I really want to tell you you are too because I'm pretty sure you want to get paid for your work and I'm pretty <laughs> sure that you want to be able to own land. Like, I, you know, like it's just a, it's a, it's a swear word right. in evangelicalism. It's the F-bomb. Um, sure. and, and I'm from New York and that is not the F-bomb. Just let me say that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, okay. So, um, you know, feminists have been accused of, of ruining, of being harmful to men. And in the 1990s and early 2000s, we had all these books about how the church was being feminized by women. And I found that very interesting since 90% of top leadership is male. I think it's over 70% of worship songs are written by men. It might even be higher. And so I used to think, well, how can women be feminizing the church if like, you know, the highest levels are being run by men. But, um, and of course, this, the, the reaction to this, this feminization of the church was this hyper Mark Driscoll, hyper militant masculinity. Mm -hmm. um, so there has been this real pushback against the feminist movement. Um, I want to go to where I'm going. Um, you make the quote, you say the argument that masculinity is not under crisis because of, feminiz femi because of feminizing. It is in trouble because it is, more often than not, defined by what it is not rather than by what it is. Yeah. So that is so profound and so true. Can you <laughs> help our listeners understand that? Yeah. So, you know, masculinity is not weak. Masculinity is not vulnerable. Masculinity is not dominate. You know, you're not dominated as a man. It, that's, what it, that's what it describes. So that's the, the is not part. I, I think... Uh, part of that is also that masculinity is set up against something. So it's masculinity is defined as not being feminine. So whatever right. we define femininity as, then masculinity is the opposite of that. <clears throat> and, and so there's always this fear of, of being lumped in with something that is not deemed masculine. Uh, and, and so, Anytime masculinity feels that it is being threatened, it will pick its enemy and say that that's the 
that's the problem, right? It's, uh, and for a large part, it's been feminization that we don't want to, to, to be feminine. And so we reject anything, anything. I mean, just think about like, <laughs> there's a story I tell in the book of how parents wanted to make sure that their boys grew up to be boys and their girls grew up to be girls. And so they had this big, long argument about how they should dress infants, thinking that that would make a big difference in how they turned out, whether they turned out more masculine or more feminine. Because prior to, you know, like the 1900s or whatever, babies just wore like white gowns, regardless of gender. So right. they said, oh, we got to start the gender differentiation long before that. They had this big, long argument about what was appropriate for boys, what was appropriate for little girls. And I forget exactly what magazine it was, but in the early 1900s, the magazine came out and said definitively that the proper color for boys to wear uh, was pink because it's the more masculine color, right? And so there's this huge like push. To, to, <laughs> our our listeners are going to, pink. Did he say pink? Yes, people. He said yes, pink. I said pink. I said pink, <laughs> right. It has since, since shifted. But again, it's this idea of whatever is, whatever is a threat, whatever is deemed feminine and other, we want to reject that completely. And, and that'll change over time. And, and so... Uh, now we find ourselves in a time period where gender stuff is all over the news, right? right and right. it's it's a huge conversation and it's a huge threat. It's part of the reason I think that masculinity is super anxious right now. And you're seeing a lot more expressions, I think, of what we would deem toxic masculinity showing up um, because it sees that it's a threat. And it's a threat because I have to be separate than that. And if the lines get blurry... And it's how am I going to know that I'm truly a man? Right. And Michael Kimmel would argue, you know, he's one of the leading sociologists on masculinity in the United States. And he would argue that actually what the feminist movement did. And by the way, those of you listening, there wasn't a feminist movement. There's been different waves (laughs) that have come again in each. Right. There's been like, well, they, we argue whether it's two or three, but anyway, point being is that when the women like started the ability, like fought for the right to own property, right? Well, now we can own property without you owning it. I can go and I think in the seventies, I could finally get a loan and buy my own house. So I, I can now provide for myself. I can work in the workplace, right? I can actually be assertive. Those things, these characteristics, mm-hmm. we had very distinguished lines and he argues that what happened with the feminist movement is the women went over to the categories that men were in and they took some of their stuff (laughs) and and it left men going, well, hold on. If, if, if she can provide, then who am I? Cause I thought I was provider, right? If she can, right. So they never, and he would argue that men are just waking up to, Hey, we might need to redefine who we are very much on what you say, not on by who we're not but by who we are, right? And and he says the same thing as you do, that we are constant, men are constantly defining themselves against women. I'm not effeminate. That's what I'm not. So any, so we've stolen from your corner and it's upset you men that we've taken your categories. We've taken your stuff, if you will, Um, (laughs) which is problematic. Um, So this muscular Christianity, which I would say we see most of in the United States, particularly in evangelical communities. um, Yeah. Um, I loved the story you told in your book about Esau and Jacob, and I've never heard it framed that way, and I've never heard it taught that way. And I think it's a fabulous example for our listeners to hear. About. Because what we do here when we're teaching men is David and Goliath and, you know, Armageddon yep. and Jesus flipping tables. You know, we, we hear the stories of muscular masculinity, Christianity in the text. We don't hear this story. So would you share with us your, your framing of that? Yeah, so you got Jacob and Esau, these these two brothers who couldn't be more different than one another. 
And you've got Esau, who is a hunter, who is burly and hairy. And just, you know, you kind of picture him as the quintessential outdoorsman. Just he's he's a man. And then Jacob is literally described as uh, a man who hung around the tents with a woman, with women. And His mama. And made, yeah, he, he was a mama's boy. He really was. <laughs> and, and so if you were just to ask the question, put Jacob and Esau in a church, which one is the church going to choose as the one who is more manly? Mm. Esau. And yet God, is, God chose Jacob. Like God saw something completely different and said, Esau, I have hated Jacob, I have loved. Mm. And I don't know what that, you know, it, but it calls into question, did, did God choose the less masculine person? Or is it, or were they, or was their masculinity not defined by where they, the spaces they inhabited and how they showed up in the world? Right. Like, yeah, it, it's, it's just a fascinating thing. And, and I kept coming back to, if these two guys, showed up to a promise keepers alley or to some other church and you put them on stage, most men would say Esau. Esau. I want to be like Esau. Yep. Yep. Yeah. yeah it's the same thing of like, um, when we talk about, well, I listened to some famous mega church pastors speak. Um, and they'll, they'll talk a lot like about battle and victory when it comes to men rising up and being the kind of man they're supposed to be. I just rarely hear them talk about the fruit of the spirit, right? Which is, which well, is non-gendered. Sure. We don't say, hey, men, you need to be gentle. You need to be kind. You need to be loving. You need to be peaceful, right? Like we aren't looking for those characteristics in our men. We're not even no. telling her. And yet that's the fruit of the spirit, which is both embodied in male and female. That's indicators that it, we're doing well. <laughs> yeah, it, it ought to be embodied by both men and women. But even even though we don't, they're not gendered. In our minds, they are right. If right. you were to like, if you were to write out the fruits of the spirit and then say, okay, gentleness is that a masculine or a feminine trait? We'd say feminine. The feminine. Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, kindness. Uh, even joy. Like, is it okay for a guy just to have a moment of unbridled joy, just throwing his head back and laughing and dancing and just joy? No, nah, you'd be looking at him and be like, what's wrong with that guy? Like, <laughs> calm down, dude, you know? <laughs> you know like, that's, that's sort of it. Yeah. The only fruits of the spirit that are, like, men maybe patience uh, in some forms of love, but only in certain forms, mostly like the combative forms of love, like we're going to speak the truth in love, like that kind of love. Uh, and then uh, self-control, self-control, which is a really yeah. odd one because, yeah, we, you should, you, men, you need to be self-controlled, but women, you need to dress modestly because men can't control themselves. Right. Like is this it? is really which weird is way we talk about it. Yep. 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 One of the things you say that I love that was a real aha for me, particularly in answering this question about the church being feminized, because we do know a lot of churches have more women attend than men in the United States right yep. now. And so, you know, and I get it. We talk about love and you sing these songs and we ask people to hold hands sometimes, you know, all that stuff. And so we can think it's feminized, um, even though the majority of leadership is male. But you offered a different picture that I have said to people over and over again, and I think it's valid. And I'm going to quote you. You said, don't yeah. you love it when people quote you? You're like, oh my God, I hope I said it right. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, what, what, what I say? <laughs> uh, you said the message of the gospel conflicts with the cultural message guys hear every day. According to the cultural definitions of maleness, men must be independent, self-reliant, able to provide, and strong. The gospel tells us we must be dependent on Christ and 
other believers and that God is the true provider and that when we are weak, then we are strong. Maybe men aren't coming to church because if they accept the gospel, then culture won't see them as a man. But if they prove their masculinity in culture, then they will be racked with guilt at church. Yeah. Yeah, I wrote that. <laughs> That's profound. Yeah. And I think it's right. Well, yeah. I mean, one of the things as I was wrestling through all this stuff was if the essence of masculinity in America is that I have to prove myself as a man, then that directly conflicts with the gospel that says I don't have to prove myself. In fact, there's nothing I can do to prove myself worthy. Those two things are at odds with one another. And we have to, we, like the church, when we so quickly adopt those kinds of messages, and on Father Day, Father's Day, we get up there and give a message that men have to try harder and be better and do all of that that we're actually giving them a message that is counter to the gospel, which says, uh, dear beloved son, you already have that title and you didn't earn it. And it's not something that can be taken from you. Uh, you can begin to live into that now. And, and you can do that without, uh, without fear or without anxiety. Just rest in this identity. So it seems like to me resting in that identity allows men the freedom to not be as anxious, um, to be loved, to maybe start to be humanized. Like I think one of the things we do with men by not allowing them to be vulnerable or weak is we keep them from being known, which I think is so bizarre because actually I think it's Andy Crouch that pointed out that God himself was vulnerable, vulnerable meaning open to woundedness in Genesis. Mm -hmm. Our creator, um, part of his characteristic or part of, the divine's characteristic is vulnerability, willing to be wounded. And we see Jesus do the exact same thing, willing to be wounded, to be seen as weak. And so it's fascinating to me, wounded vulnerability is one of the ways we become known, right? We put ourselves mm-hmm. out there as naked and weird and as wonderful as we are. And we say, here I am. Are you okay with me? And somebody right. says, yeah, I kind of like that. You're all right. You know, like knownness is like, in, like probably fundamentally, the, the core concept behind being an image bearer. And yet yeah. we keep you guys from that. So it sounds like to me what you're saying is if men could anchor themselves in the gospel of who they are as the beloved, that they could then take a deep breath and actually maybe start moving into knownness with people in ways that make them fully human and alive. Yeah? Right. right. I mean, yes, if, if, the God, if, if God knows everything about me knows my biggest points of shame and still says, I, I know you, I see everything about you and I love you. Like if we can live into that and if the church becomes a place that fully believes that and begins to love others in that same way, right? It's the whole idea of the way that God loves us. So we love others like, and love that. Then, then suddenly in the relationships between guys in church, I don't have to prove myself to them and I can, and I can let them know. Yeah. I I like to cook, you know, I'm kind of like Jacob. I can make a mean soup and you're going to love it. And I'd love to do that for you sometime. Or, you know, let the side like David come out where you just, Whoa, whoa, whoa. Did you just say you have people over and you cook for them? Like I got, I love that. Do you men hear that out there? (laughs) Well, 
I'll be I'll be honest. I do do that, but oftentimes it's on a smoker. So like That's okay. I am I do I <laughs> Hey, I'm in Texas. It's all on the smoker. Oh, okay, so you get it. <laughs> it's all on a smoker. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. You know what's very yeah. interesting? Um this is a side note, but and I'm, then I want to go to Jesus. Um my husband started cooking uh, almost every single night since the pandemic. So we both work from home and he's really creative okay. and he's bored out of his mind. So at night he started to cook. We've been married 34 years. I've cooked for our family, the most, you know, almost all of those years. But in the last two years, he has cooked almost every single meal in the last two, two years. Every time we have someone over for dinner and Steve's cooking, they'll say something like, so do you usually do all the cooking and everything? And and it's so gendered because I said to my husband recently, you know, no one asked me for 32 years if I was always the cook. No one ever said that while they watched me cook. Why are they saying to you, Hey, you know, like, cause it's intriguing to them to see this man put on this elaborate, wonderful meal and it's, it shouldn't be weird. It shouldn't be weird. Right. Right. Anyway, that's a side note. One of the things I, (laughs) um, one of the things I loved about your book is you take us to Jesus and you challenge us to maybe consider that our ideal should not be what we see in the media, like John Wayne or, you know, James Bond, but perhaps Jesus is our yep. example. So would you tell us what you see about Jesus and how that can inform us about what it means to be, if you will, a real man? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, I think before I go there, I think you have to preface it with uh, what we see in culture, you know, the John Waynes and whatever other images we use, those become lenses through which we will interpret scripture and interpret Jesus. Like everybody's, I think everybody's real quick to say, yeah, well, obviously you should look at Jesus, what it means to be a man. But what we have to do is first examine and take off our cultural lens through which we are looking at Jesus. So for example, a lot of people will look and say like, see, Jesus was a real man. He flipped tables. Right. He got angry and he flipped tables. What's fascinating, though, is if you were to put Jesus in his cultural context, in the Roman world, he would have been seen as less than a man for doing that because they would have argued he lost control of his passions. That's right. That's right. He didn't have self-control, right? Right. And then we can even undermine the, the narrative of Jesus, like, it was much more controlled. It wasn't as big of a deal. Like, he, he couldn't go into the temple with a, wet, with a whip, so, like, he made it with what was there, with straw. I mean, we can undermine that all over. But then you've got Jesus who's willing to uh, equate himself to a mother hen. Like, I haven't met the guy yet who's like, yeah, I love my kids like a mother hen. I just, wow. like, I haven't met that guy. But Jesus looks and weeps over Israel and says, like a mother hen, I wish I could gather you to me. Right? He's just, he's willing to adopt that kind of imagery to, to talk about himself and to talk about the care that he wants to show towards others. Um there's even just some other cultural things that Jesus did that are really fascinating. Uh, when he was uh, hung on the cross, or here, I'll back up even before that. When he stood before Pilate, and Pilate asked him to defend himself, and Jesus remains silent. silent. Like, that is a challenge to most modern understandings of what it means to be a man, as well as the ancient ones. Like, the correct way is you don't be a doormat. Right. You don't let anybody take advantage of you. You defend yourself at all costs. Somebody punches you, you punch them back. And Jesus remains silent and is led like a lamb to the slaughter. Um, yeah, I, the, the, you got the, 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 the Sermon on the Mount, you know, turn the other cheek. Uh, pray for those who persecute you. Do not resist, resist an evil person. I mean, these sorts of 
teachings of Jesus run really counter to our understandings of masculinity. Uh, and he challenged the Roman ideals as well as the modern American ideals uh, because he is something that is completely different. And he was someone who was, um, was showing us what it means to be fully human. And I think that that's the key. Like Jesus didn't come to make men more manly. Right. Jesus didn't come to make women more feminine. Jesus came to make us whole, to make us more human, whether we are men or women. Uh, and so I, I think when we look at Jesus, what we see is uh, a human being fully, fully alive. Yeah. Showing us what it looks like to be appropriately human, appropriately human, yes. which is interesting because yep. I've been studying um, a little bit of Paul recently, which I'm not really a big fan of. Uh, studying Paul. I, I'm not against Paul. I actually think Paul really liked women, <laughs> but I actually would like to hang out with Jesus more. I think, you know, I spent most of my seminary yeah. life, they've, they've corralled me to think about Paul's words. I'm like, yeah, what about Jesus? Let's talk about Jesus, you know? Um, but Paul used, um, used the metaphor of mothering or being maternally nurturing. That's the largest yeah, yeah. example. If there's a metaphor he used the most, it was that very feminine, a feminine um, metaphor for his leadership um, in the churches, which I think is fascinating. And in that culture, someone who was considered a male leader would not have approved of Paul's way in which he spoke about that, that he would take, yeah. um, use a metaphor that represented something of less status, less power, less authority, which I think P Paul and Jesus are trying to show us something about what it means to be human. And we do that mm -hmm. in our male bodies with our male hormones and our male soul. I, I'm not so sure I'm willing to go to the wall over the soul, but I think it's I think it's gendered, and I do it in my female body with my female hormones and my female soul, and and there's a spectrum in how that's represented, um, amongst women and amongst men, and so yeah, yeah, I think I think that's the interesting, um, but I love what you said. We've got to be careful that we're taking off our lens, our own cultural lens of how we're interpreting, and I think that's true. Why we need the full counsel of scripture versus just picking Jesus flipping the, the, the tables because we have Esau and Jacob also, right? Right. And right. I think even and, David, and even, is, even David was not the most, right? He was tinier. Did you know, you know what I mean? He, he was tiny and he played the harp and he wrote <laughs> a lot of poems. And, and he danced, like, some say naked, right. you and know, he, like. <laughs> right. Yes. And he, he had that moment of exuberant joy that would make other guys do like, like settle down, man, put some clothes on, get it together. Yeah. You're, right? you're like being way too emotional. You, right. um, and I think the other, uh, real quickly, uh, the other image that we often go to, not just Jesus flipping the tables, but Jesus riding on a white horse at the end of Revelation. And even that one, if you start really digging into it, it's not Jesus coming in with like, like William Wallace on a horse slaying his enemies. Uh, it's Jesus on the horse before he even meets his enemies, already covered in blood because it's his own blood. Like he dies for his enemies and that's how he's victorious. Wow. So. That's beautifully said. Beautifully said. Well, one of the things you say that I was trying to wrap my mind around was that you say um, guys need some experience or outside voice to validate his masculinity. What do you mean by um, they need to be affirmed and validated? What exactly does that yeah. look like? Well, if... Uh, there is nothing biological that signifies a boy has become a man, right? Like, there's just, just we just keep growing, right? Women have some indication that they've reached womanhood and they've crossed that threshold. There's nothing like that for men. And in a culture where 
you have to prove your masculinity. What you're looking for in that proving it is like for someone to say, yes, yes, you are. And so that, that's the affirmation piece. And what I think is <clears throat> we, shouldn't, we shouldn't wait for men to prove it, to give it to them, but rather we should affirm like you have crossed that threshold. You are now in masculinity. They need to hear that um, so that they can begin to live into it. So part of it is to hear it coming from the gospel of God saying, you are my beloved son. You, you are someone in whom I, I am thrilled. Uh, but we also need to hear that from other guys so that we can just let down our guard and, and let some of that anxiety go. You know, like there is always, it is always good to hear from God that you are forgiven, that you are loved, whether you're male or female, right? It's always good that. But when that is reaffirmed by people, right? Sometimes God speaks to us through people and that is an equally important message. And so I think the same thing exists with masculinity. So how, how, so, how have you done that? Like, so how, you've obviously probably put that into practice, I'm guessing, since, since you're yeah, saying, hey, this is necessary. Uh, what does it look like for you to do that to men? Yeah, so uh, the ways I've done it, when I see a guy at church who's leading his family well through something difficult, how, you know, and not leading like as in like the patriarchal Thank sense, you. but like, <laughs> yes. So, walking alongside uh, you know, his family. Walking alongside his family. That's a better way to say it. So, you know, a guy in a church a few years ago uh, lost both his sons in like a year and a half time. Wow. And uh, they were older. He, he was an older gentleman, but, you know, they were older. And, you know, he just, he walked with his family well. He cared for them well. He, he was honest about his own grief and frustration in it all. And so I just said to him, I said, you know, like, you did that really you did that as well as a husband and a father could. Well done, you know? Yeah. Uh, so, so that's, uh, you know, when, when men do that, um, or even, you know, uh, an experience a few months ago where the guy who was extremely honest about an addiction that he was dealing with. And afterwards, I was like, that took all the courage in the world. Yeah. Like, well done, to be honest about that. And then as I think about it with my son, uh, in, the, in the book, I have two sons, but when I wrote the book, I only had one and I dedicated the book to him. And I just said, you have nothing to prove. I think that's mm -hmm. what it says with the, the dedication. And so I try to model that as I follow and father him of like, uh, you know, you don't have to play football to prove anything to me. Or, you know, he and I a few years ago got to go on a camping trip, just the two of us, and just made sure that I spoke words of affirmation into him and over him. And we talked about uh, the transition into manhood and what that looks like a little bit and yeah just trying to do that in some it, it, when i see men living into their humanness i want to point that out and, and, and affirm it even if it's not like um a victory right like even if it's just hey yeah. i see you being vulnerable that's really important i love that you're willing to yeah. that's that is a victory actually it's courageous right but it's so it, sad it's, it's super courageous but especially it's a as a man kind of courage Right. right, because for men, we often think of courage as running into the burning building, right? But sometimes courage is willing to go, I don't have all the answers. Right. I don't know. I'm really, I'm, I'm, I'm hurting right now. Right. Right? Like that's, that takes just an unbelievable amount of courage. And I want to affirm that. Well, and so that doesn't make you any less of a man. That just makes you human. Thank you. Yeah, what's so sad to me about what you're saying right now is I'm sitting here going, okay, what you're talking about is encouraging one another, building one another up, right? It's this, I mean, there's, all these love one another's in the scripture. And I'm thinking, I can't even believe we're having to say, hey, it's important to affirm. 
But I will tell you, I have, you know, I've had to say to my husband over and over again, hey, you know, here's what one of your sons are going through. You need to affirm that. You need to speak into that. You need to like make them know they're okay. Make them know they're known. Make them know they're loved no matter what, right? Like I have to keep tapping my husband because he was trained not to do that. And so it doesn't come natural for him to just lavish encouragement. And I'm not talking about false flattery. I'm talking about lavishly looking at people and saying, I see this in you. I want you to know I see this in you and yay for you. Go, go. And I think we women do that better. I think we've been given the permission to do it. Scripture calls yeah, us given, to it, you know? Yep. But yeah, we're just saying, you've hey. Given the, you've, you've been given, females have been given the permission to it, but they've also been given the emotional intelligence to do it. Like men haven't been trained in, in, in the things, in, 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 the, uh, in the ways of the heart, if you will, right. the emotions, right? Men have been given it, two emotions that are safe for them to feel and to express anger and jealousy will not ain't <laughs> that's it anger and jealousy that's right we so we have our toolbox is a hammer yeah and that's it that's all we've got yeah and here's and a, so we just don't even know how to encourage here's an interesting example and i was telling my daughter this i'm glad my husband has his earphones on right now he'd be going oh my god i can't believe you're saying that publicly but the other day we were working out together and one of the young guys at the workout center who works there was telling me that he's getting ready to do a 60 mile hike. And my husband and I hike a lot. And, um, and I was like, Oh my gosh, that's amazing. You know, like he's going to Idaho, he's going to hike 60 miles. How many days are you going to do that? And he's like, well, I think I'm going to do it in five days. And I was like, wow, that's like 12 miles a day. That's so good. So I run past Steve while we're working out and I'm like, Hey, Michael's getting ready to do a 60 mile hike in Idaho. Isn't that awesome? He's going to accomplish it in five days. And he's like, eh. And I'm like, I ran back and punched him and I go, no, no, what you're supposed to say is, way to go, Michael. But I thought, oh my God, there's the competition immediately kicking in. He's like, yeah, so what, I could do that. I'm like, really? Yeah, yeah. You know, that's yeah. just a typical yep. everyday example of like men not having the privilege to say to each other, wow, impressive, right? Instead of being competitive. Right. Yeah. All right, so I yep. want to end with this, exactly right. this story. I actually want to end with a story, a statement, and then a question. Okay. Okay. And this is kind of personal to me, so this is why I wanted to end with this. But um, I teach women um, about body theology. I call it body image because nobody knows what body theology is, but it's the idea of what's the body all about. And women have a lot of emphasis put on their bodies, and they're in a lot of bondage um, and have misunderstandings and a bad narrative about what the female body is all about. And so I spend a lot of time working with women about um, what does God say about our female bodies and how do we learn to live into them just the way they are? How do we learn to celebrate living into the body? Um, What I know is that as I give them this new narrative of how God sees their body and what their body is even about. So if you're listening, one of the things your body is about mostly is that it allows you to be known, right? Like I'm physically present 90% of what you read from me or hear from me and know from me is body communication. Um, When the body dies, we no longer can build community. We no longer can build memories. We can think about things, but there's no more memories to be made. So lose somebody and you know very much what the body is about. It's not about the extra five pounds or (laughs) the big nose, right? All of a sudden, none of that matters because the body's about way more than being thin, sexy, and young. But anyway, so I spend a lot of time with women on this. What I know is as I hand them this better vision, 
I know as I hand them a new way to view this, that they are going to like go back into the culture, go back into their homes, go back to the church community, and everywhere they turn, they're going to be swimming upstream against this new narrative, this beautiful narrative, this freedom narrative. And they're going to be really pressured to continue to try to see themselves um, as the culture tells them. Um, and so it's like, it's like I know I'm handing them this new vision, but it's almost impossible because of what's happening in the culture, because of the pressure, for them to actually live into it, which is so disappointing to me. But um, I wonder if this ideal man thing that we have going on here is very similar. Like, we're offering for us to see Esau and Jacob and choose Jacob. We're offering um, men to, to see Jesus in a different light and, and be okay to be emotional and be okay to show weakness and be okay to not always be the winner and the str- always the strongest and have all the answers. Right? Like, we're asking men to enter into a fuller picture of humanity, but as soon as they do... Um, there's a cost to it. And this is where I share a story that's personal to me. I have some men in my life, and one of the men I'm thinking of um, growing up was just a very sensitive kid, kind, gentle, served everybody, loved to help everybody, gave everybody stuff. And in middle school, early high school, was bullied and hazed by his friends, by people who supposedly you know, were his um, people. And I watched him do exactly what you described in the opening of this podcast, and that was he got, um, he put on a shelter. He put on, a, a, a you know, this armor to keep himself from being hurt. And so as an adult, I watch him say things that are sexist and misogynistic, and, you know, he's always joking and jabbing at boys and men and, and reducing them instead of building them up. You know, he's always knocking them down, and I'm always like, that is so not who you are. That is so not who you are in your core. So my question to you is, this pressure that you men feel to conform is immense. It's everywhere. It's everywhere you swim. So how on earth do we help men get free? How do we do this? I want freedom for my brothers. That's a $30,000 question, right? Yeah. Um, for, For me, I think, I think it's, men and women working together to help men be fully human in all that it is, uh, to uh, help us see the cultural pressures we're under, as well as to um, embrace the new vision in Jesus and to just continue to uh, almost to, to be relentless in reminding us that we are more than um, more than what the culture tells us, more than uh, the idea, the word that comes in, I forget where, like more than conquerors, like we're more than just these these sort of robots who are exist for the protection of others, that we ourselves mm. can be wounded, that we ourselves can be hurt, that we are, uh, we're not impervious to the world, but the world very much has an effect on us and to give us space and permission uh, to name that. Uh, you know, thinking back even to as you were talking uh, and describing the, that, that, that man that you know um, and then connecting that to one of the things I'm trying to do, my oldest son is that guy. Like he is calm, like he is, he is kind and he has a big heart. 
like literally he, he wants to play football right now. And as I'm telling people this, people who know him well will go, you, you, does he know that he has to hit, hit people, people and he will get hit? <laughs> right. Like, does he know that that is involved in the game? And I was like, ah, oh, he consciously knows that, but I don't think he knows it yet. Uh, but, but like, he's just, he's just this bit. Like, so I, I often say to him, I often will say to him, man, your superpower is your heart. Like, and, and I, if he, he's, he's 11 years old, he'll be 12 next month. And if I were to say to him right now, Hey buddy, what's your superpower? He'll say it's my heart. Mm. And, and so I just, I'm trying to, to just reinforce that, to make that normal. And I, my hope and, and the way that I pastor my church is that it is going to be a space and a place for him to continue to figure out what it means to have a big freaking heart um, and to not lose that and not have it be shut down. Right. Because the world will try to squeeze it out or conform it to what yeah. a real man looks like, at least, for sure. I've seen it happen. Um, yeah, this is a big issue for me. It's funny. I um, have spent the last 30 years of my life in ministry working to help women get free. But, you know, as I talked to Carolyn Custis James about this, as soon as you start entering that about letting women get free, um, you can't help but start having a heart, a broken heart for our men and say, no, no. Our men need this too. This isn't just yeah. a feminist movement where we're trying to change something for women. The story we're telling men and this, what we're putting men through is very dehumanizing. And um, yeah, it's time for us to kind of rework that as much as we can. So I'm doing my part. And I hope that those who listen um, will be thinking today about how they can, how you can um, point it out, make room for your brothers to be vulnerable. Hey, you know, like... Men struggle with depression. Don't be freaked out if your loved one who's male struggles with depression, <laughs> right? Like it's right. it's not a weakness. It's just part of humanity. And yeah, so maybe we need to figure out how we can do this and implement one thing um, this week in that. Anyway, thank you for listening. And Nate, thank you very much uh, for taking this time out of your day. Tell our listeners where they can find you and where they can get your book. And you have yeah, books. Yeah, get my book where- I have books. Yep. I have another, <laughs> I have two books, uh, and they're all, you know, wherever you get your books from, uh, they're available there. So Barnes and Noble, uh, Christianbooks.com or Amazon, uh, they're, they're everywhere. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Nate pile 79, same for Instagram. I'm around Facebook as well. And you can go to my website at natepile.com. Great. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you. Hey, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then hop on over to themarcellaproject.com and sign up for our email or check out some of our other resources. You can also find me on the Marcella Project Facebook page or on every other platform of social media as Jackie Reese, R-O-E-S-E. Have a great day.